0: Hello and welcome everybody to Revive Health's Daily Briefing Live for Thursday, May fourteenth, 2020. This is our 30-minute review of the latest, most important news, resources, and advice for health system marketers and communicators dealing with COVID-19. I am Chris Bevelo, Health Systems Practice Lead at Revive Health and your host for the show. I am joined by Chase Kleckner, who is Senior Marketing Manager at Revive Health and the show's producer. Hello, Chase. Hey, Chris. Good to see you as always. And we are joined back by popular demand, once again, by Sasha Bagosian, EVP and Head of Insights at Revive Health. Hey, Sasha.
1: Hey, Chris. How are you?
0: Very good, sir. Thank you for coming back. Of course. We're going to get into some really cool uh, further research on uh, patient fears. We've been following this thread for about a month uh, through surveys, and Sasha and his team have dug deeper with some one to one interviews. And so we learned even more from that. So we're going to spend the show talking about that primarily. Uh, we'll also hit a couple of other things as we go along. Uh, we want this to be interactive. So if you have a question for Sasha or Chase or myself, please throw that in the QA queue in Zoom down at the bottom of your window. Uh, well, excuse me. We will try to get to those uh, as many as we can at the bottom of the show. Uh, you can also use the chat function to talk to other attendees and Chase will be using that to um, post some links to the uh, sources we're gonna cite. Uh, But if you've got questions for us, make sure those go in the Q&A queue so we see them there. Um, Remember that you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, just search for Revive Health Daily Briefing Live. And as always, we'll be posting a recording of this episode by the end of today. You can find that at thinkrevivehealth.com slash COVID-19. You can also find some of the research we're going to be alluding to today there. Uh, you can find content from our biweekly uh, updates on COVID-19 for hospitals and health systems. Um, and on Monday, I'm saying this publicly now, Sasha, so here it goes. On Monday, we will have a report of the data that uh, Sasha is going to share with us today on the show. So that will also be posted on our communications hub. So again, that's thinkrevivehealth.com COVID-19. And if you go to the, our website at any time other than when the show is live, up at the top of the homepage, you will find uh, a, a banner that will also take you there. So a couple ways to get to it. So Let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, we want to share a couple of news points. Uh, we always start with a case count and we do that just to kind of keep everything in perspective, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of where we're at with this pandemic uh, because obviously where we're at and as we move through this, uh, hopefully uh, to come down the other side and stay down, uh, that impacts how we think about uh, hospital and health system marketing and communications and what we should be focused on. So. We use the Johns Hopkins tool for the show, and uh, when I refresh that, we are now up to 4,387,438 cases globally, and 298,392 deaths. When we look at the United States specifically, we are at uh, 1,398,393 cases, Uh, confirmed and 84,575 deaths. Uh, A couple of things we wanted to point out. One, while we use the Johns Hopkins tool, uh, I personally, I know other people in the agency also are very fond of the New York Times section, uh, because they have just a lot of interesting ways to look at the data. They break it down by hotspots, they break it down by states in terms of who's growing, Who's staying? The, <laughs> excuse me, staying the same, and who's decreasing? Uh, for example, right now, if you go there, you'll see that there are five states that are um, increasing. So that's Virginia, Arkansas, South Dakota, Maine, and Montana. Uh, surprised not to see Minnesota in there uh, because we have we had a huge spike. It looks like we're starting to come down a little bit. Primarily, that's because we've been testing more, but also we've had. Um, more cases but as a result of the testing, but we've had more deaths as well. Um, the other thing that that helps show is uh, a day-by-day count, which I think you can find in the Johns Hopkins tool, uh, but it's just, it's, it's very easy to see in New York uh, Times area. And that shows both in cases and deaths, a gradual decline. Looks like in both cases, we peak somewhere in you know mid mid-April, April April 12th or something, maybe April 17th, and there's been a steady decline. One of the things we've heard is that if you took New York's numbers out of that data, you would actually not see a decline in cases or deaths because New York represented such a a large part of both of those. Now they are in a decline, so they're kind of pulling the average down. But if you took them out, you wouldn't see that. Uh, We were trying to find some verification of that before the show, The best I could find, and Chase will post this, is a Time uh, article, but it's pretty old. It's from May 5th, so it's about 10 days old now. um, That shows, again, if you took New York out of um, the case count, you're actually seeing a plateau and even a little bit of a rise. Now, again, that's through May 5th. Not sure where that looks like now, Um, but just there's a lot of ways to look at this, uh, and obviously we need to be up to speed on all of them. Anything you want to add, <laughs> excuse me, Sasha, to that? Yeah, I, I think
1: I, I'm glad you brought up um, sort of that sequestration issue of looking at the importance of looking at the numbers by taking New York out because it does have a pretty big impact. And it's probably a more accurate look at what's happening in the rest of the country or places where um, the the pandemic has arrived a little bit later than it did on the East Coast.
0: Yeah, and it's it's all this has to have context, right? Because we could see an uh, uh, increase in cases because we're doubling down on testing. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just showing we're, we're, it's more transparent. I think that the number to, to pay more attention to is deaths uh, because that does show whether this is kind of waning or whether it's going to, you know, we, we, we're all expecting a second wave. Maybe it'll come sooner rather than later. Are we opening too soon? That kind of thing. So um, just have all that context in mind when you're looking at it. So uh, we want to go ahead and dive in, Sasha. We're starting a little early, but we want to give as much time to you to dive into um, the research we want to share today. So just as a recap, we have run, (coughs) excuse me, surveys nationally and even in some local markets, digging into um, something we found early on when we started doing consumer surveying, which was this deep-seated fear of returning to the hospital. As we emerge from COVID, for a lot of different reasons, and so we've posted that on our um, a lot of that on our uh, COVID hub, so you can find that there. But we wanted to understand more. So why don't you start by just kind of explaining this latest round of research, qualitative research, um, what we're hoping to find, how we did it, just the basics. Happy to. Yeah. Let's
1: Let's start at the top. So we we started our research uh, with really a quantitative look by surveying across the country, targeting patients who are in acute need of surgery services. Um, we found really interesting insights in that, but what we also found was sort of elements of lots and lots of feelings that were a little hard to really get to the bottom of by looking at numbers. So we thought, hey, let's let's try to figure out what all these feelings mean, and the best way to do that is really about just, just talking to patients. So. Uh, we did just that over the course of the last week. Uh, we uh, went across country and um, interviewed uh, about a dozen, I think maybe 13 uh, patients overall in several different markets. Um, and we used a partner to help identify the particular subset of patients. So these are individuals who, again, either had surgery scheduled that was canceled or postponed due to COVID or individuals that have um, run into some real acute healthcare need that uh, requires surgery, uh, essentially ASAP. Uh, We talked to them. Um, Each interview was about an hour or so. Some ran over, some ran under, and they um, stretched across the spectrum of acuity. So there were people who had needed surgery that um, dealt with quality of life issues, um, and there were also people that uh, really had sort of a a life or death-ish scenario that, that they were looking at that required uh, surgery to, um, to address. Um, so all those conversations really allowed us to get at the feelings. So get you get somebody on the phone, it's much different than having them take a survey. And what I really wanted to do um, in those conversations was understand where they were at sort of in their headspace um, and what, what it is that they're trying to work through in order to sort of get themselves ready to walk in through a healthcare facility.
0: Okay, so now's probably a good time to just before we dive deep to, to help put, you know, all of this research into a little bit of context so folks know how to, to leverage it, right? So whenever we do consumer surveys, we always have to have kind of a bit of a grain of salt, right? Like people are willing to say things in a survey that don't necessarily reflect what they would actually do. Like plenty of research shows that. Um, I think the classic example of this for me is... Um, before COVID, there was a lot of research that showed that consumers, when surveys said that they would, you know, like it was a high number, 60 70% in some studies, would switch their primary care provider if they could provide one that was at a lower cost, which theoretically makes sense. Of course, all things being equal, somebody would say they would do that. But of course, we know from real data that people aren't switching their primary care providers near at that level, because it's way more complex complicated than that. So when we think about fears of returning to the hospital, um, we have to kind of keep that in 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 our mind. And even on qualitative research, right, this is this is just trying to understand, um, no matter how many people we talk to, different insights we can pull out of it. So you've got to kind of keep all of that in context, but the more we can dig into this, the more we're gonna understand the potential um, for why people are thinking this, for the different messaging and things that are, they're going to help us overcome that. Um, so every single one of these is going to provide value. We just have to kind of put in that overall context. Is that fair? That's,
1: that's, a, that's perfectly fair. And, and there are some folks um, I, I know who are participating in, um, in this session who we have as clients and we've done similar research for. And what I always tell them is, A little bit of research is better than no research. A lot of research is probably better than a little bit of research, but there is no perfect scenario. What we're trying to do is really um, uh, understand the language that people are using, understand um, how they communicate about these fears so that we can start to put a picture together um, that sort of emerges from a dozen conversations we've had of people's mind frame and what people are trying to work through or, or solve or what information they need in order to get over a hump or an obstacle, which the quantitative research suggested, um, there was kind of a big obstacle of, of fear. So we're trying to get at what it takes to work through that for people.
0: Okay, so one last thing before we, we dive into the actual actual some of the findings one remember if you've got a question for Sasha or myself or Chase throw it in the Q&A queue Uh, we want to try to get to those at the end also one of the things we're going to ask you at the end of the show so want you to be thinking about it now is where else would you like us to dig in with research Um, we've got some ideas of what we're going to go where we're going to go next Um, again to just further understand this kind of really uncertain time and it's not just today really for the next few months, even the rest of this year, in terms of patients and consumers and how they engage with our organizations. We're gonna continue to do this research. If you've got an idea, if there's a burning issue you'd like us to explore, let us know that. Again, throw that in the chat session. Um, Chase will monitor that and and we just wanna make sure that we give you a chance to think about it. All right, so Sasha, talk first about a little bit of the spectrum of what we've seen in terms of patient fears.
1: Sure, it's, uh, and th- this is the, the, what we found is really the value of qualitative research because it, it didn't emerge in the quant work that we did. All of our conversations started off um, identifying somebody that we were talking to along a spectrum of what we would call readiness, right? Are you ready to walk back in through a facility and get the care that you need? Um, and some people surprisingly said, yep, sign me up today. Uh, and a whole lot of them were sort of on the other end of the spectrum, but we had what we called readies. These people that um, showed no fear at the surface um, and uh, were sort of treating the conversation as business as usual. Um, so that that was the sort of spectrum that we were first greeted with as folks that are you know from one end to the other of what we call ready. Um, but we you know we have an hour to spend with these people so we we start talking and we start poking and prodding and saying okay well tell me more about how you're ready and tell me more have you thought about this have you thought about that Um, and ultimately we started really peeling back uh, these layers of readiness and they all went to the same source which was whether they're telling us or not there is lots and lots of fear down below Um, and so some people who, who say they're not ready um, they're, they sort of volunteer the fact that they're very afraid and they're able to articulate what they're afraid of very specifically. Those that communicate this sense of readiness um, at the outset, um, they have very, very similar fears. In some cases, um, just as intense. They just didn't really know how to articulate them as well or they weren't ready to. Um, but when we got into the specifics of how they were going to access a healthcare facility, what they were going to go through, all of the thoughts were right there at the top of their mind, which was you know i I don't know what's going to happen to me when I interact with another patient. I don't know what's going to happen if I interact with another with a physician um and unless the and and so that that was sort of the first block we got over was you can say you're ready, but it still sounds like there is an enormous amount of acute fear underneath that. And then when we went deeper beyond that, what emerged was that even among the folks that had sort of been brave at the beginning of the conversation, where all of them arrived at was, you know, if, if all of these specific sort of hidden fears I have don't get addressed, I think I'm gonna put this off for at least a little bit of time. So it was really interesting, the journey that we took with that subset of patients, um, because we ended up at the same place as we did with the subset of patients who started the conversation by saying, I'm fearful and I'm gonna wait. Um, and in both cases, they had this obstacle, whether they recognized it or not, or whether they assigned importance to it or not. At the end of the day, that obstacle was something they had to overcome internally um, in order to make the decision to go in, otherwise they were willing to
0: wait. So I think a couple things to add to this. So one, this just shows you again, the value of qualitative, because one of the downsides of a survey is, It's so surface level. Most people don't stop and really take time with the survey. They don't even know how to do that. So they're answering at a conscious level. But really the things that motivate people in terms of their behavior happen at an unconscious level. And so it usually takes something like a deeper interview to start, like you said, peeling away the onion and getting to that level that some people don't even realize is there. Um, the other thing is, I'll just add my own anecdotal part to this, because I think I probably would have been, if you had called me, I would have been in the, the brave category. A, because we're in this business. I know how it works. Um, and I actually had a situation where I had to go in on Monday and get a scan into a hospital that is the COVID hospital for the system that I belong to. Because at the time, I was waiting a COVID test, which is now negative, which we all knew was going to be negative despite this weird cough, right? But I didn't have a fear of going in. Like I knew what to expect. I knew like I'm not gonna to touch anything. I'll, I know how to take care of myself. But I will tell you what happened when I got in there. Um, I had to get the CT scan and they were testing for like super emergent, terrible things. So they made me wait for the radiologist to, to look at it and then they were gonna let me know right there. Because if it was like some, like a pulmonary embolism, they to deal with it. So they put me in this little room and they said, hey, when the doctor gets the results, he's going to call you on this phone. And the phone was just like a phone. I think I told this story already. Um, and and it was just a public phone just sitting there. I'm like, so you want me to pick up this phone that I, God knows who's touched it and hold it to my face. So I dug around and I found gloves, but it's, it's an example of like, I didn't think of that when I was going in. And if I had, I would have been like, so, where am I waiting and how am I interacting with people and you want me to answer this phone? Are you going to have gloves for me? Can you just call me on my cell? So it just shows you as you think through it more, I think um, those things become more apparent.
1: Yeah. It's, it's all of those details of the experience that either they have thought through and they're fearful of, or they haven't spent that much time thinking through that it hasn't occurred to them that they're going to be fearful of, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. But-
1: but as, as the prospect of going in becomes more real, they have to sort of process what the experience is going to be. And unless their, their fears are um, addressed, it's easier to put it off. And that, that became really the, the core finding uh, of our work, which was that if no, no patient that I talked to was going to believe healthcare provider telling them it's safe or it's not safe and that was fascinating Um, because they told us at the outset they trusted us they continued to reinforce that they trusted us but ultimately all of them in one way or another said you know i you have a job and your job is to convince me it's safe so i'm not going to believe you if you say it's safe but what i'm going to do because i i want and maybe this is a little bit of speculation but so they wanted a little bit of control or power over determining whether something is safe. So they, they wanted a piece of the decision. So what they were really looking for from healthcare providers, particularly their doctor, but really the entire organization that, that they were interacting with, was clues. So tell me a little bit, very specifically, about what I'm going to experience. Tell me the protocols that you've put in place. Um, tell me all of these different things that I should expect from you. And I'm going to take those pieces, and I'm going to use those as clues within my own sort of mind's eye. Um, and I'm going to make the determination whether that meets my threshold of safety risk or not, and leave that decision to me, but give me as many clues as possible. And the clues ended up being really similar um, o- over the course of all the conversations, um, and really specific examples, too. Uh, you know, in, in, one, in one case, um, uh, lady had talked to her physician, who had told her that she's going to be greeted at the door outside uh, by uh, by uh, you know some sort of greeter who will take down her phone number and then send her back to the car. She's going to sit in the car, wait for that phone call, so that um, you know she knows it's her turn. She's not going to sit at a waiting room, and then she's going to get out of her car, meet the greeter again, go around back, go up a staircase all by herself, straight into the um, straight into the patient room. Um And that to her was, okay, if they've done this, if they got together as a group and thought through this process, they must've done all the other stuff that I haven't even thought about. So you know what, based on this one piece of evidence, based on this one clue that they shared with me, I think, I think I'm think i gonna do this. And she had gone ahead and, and scheduled uh, her upcoming visit, which was fascinating, right? That one clue is really probably 5% of the work that uh, our clients and all the healthcare organizations that are on this phone call um, are doing to to provide safety measures, yet the, the patient is looking at it differently. They just want you to tell them what you're doing and they want the power to make the determination on their own, but unless they find out exactly what you're doing, they're not about to get over that obstacle. So that was fascinating to us in terms of what the content of our communication should be, how detailed it should be, how often it should be, who it should be from, All of those things are being interpreted as puzzle pieces that are going into some mind's eye where a patient can make the determination on their own.
0: So again, just super important nuance because our our surveys that we ran initially three times um, continually said the place that people trust more than any other are their local healthcare providers, hospitals, health systems, doctors, right? Um, But putting that trust into context, Is what you're talking about. And what do we mean by trust? And how far will that go? And the other thing, I I, I doubt that this got into it, but I think it would be interesting to see a lot of the research we did um, early on that first kind of exposed these fears as an issue was back when the nation was far more unified in terms of our understanding and thinking about COVID 19 how you deal with COVID-19, how serious COVID-19 is, all of that. We've obviously seen a little bit of fraying of that, maybe a little bit, putting it mildly, right? Um, So, for example, we've seen a lot of stories about how some folks are refusing to wear masks, right? Um, We hear stories about people questioning death counts or case counts. Um, And I wonder how much of that, Sasha, maybe something we can explore, would impact how people trust hospitals and health systems, because they are seen as healthcare experts, but if we're no longer trusting healthcare experts in general, some of us, um, how much of that might filter down to our own organizations? Um, and people are going to be more skeptical of, of the need for some of these precautions, as an example, on the flip side, right? Not just being scared, but like, do I really need to go through all this? Do I really need to sit in my car and wait for the phone call i mean seriously is it really that bad so maybe that's something we need to start looking at as well
1: yeah i think those are all really valid points it's um it's just interesting what you start to hear when you when you have an hour with somebody um and you're able to sort of peel back the layers it, it doesn't just inform what we need to talk to them about but it informs the order of things, um, the, the sort of subtlety or the tone of things and all of that. I'm, I'm very glad we went through this exercise because all of that sort of added a really important layer to the initial insights that we uncovered, uh, based on the quantitative survey work that we started off a couple weeks ago.
0: So a couple things real quick, and then I'll give you one last, um, one, a few more minutes, Sasha, just to wrap up with anything else. Um, one question is, just to verify, we talked to 13 people total across a number of markets, not 13 people in each market. Um, so that is a question that came up. So just want to verify that. Um, another one says, since there's so much fear to enter a health facility, have you done research on how to accelerate consumers' use of telehealth? And I know that some of our research talked a little bit to that. But do you want to speak to that, Sasha, before you wrap
1: yeah, we, we, um, we didn't really get into it, and, and I'll, I'll have to confirm the 13, but as, as part of the um, report that we issue on Monday, obviously, we'll, we'll lay out the, um, the sort of mechanics of how we did the research. And yes, it was across many markets, and it was across acuity and age. Obviously, we can't get to a whole lot with that limited in number, but we, we feel pretty good about the, the people that we were able to, um, to chat with. Um, on telehealth we didn 't get into telehealth all that deeply in um, in the qualitative work, but in the quant work, um, we sort of asked some questions around people 's level of interest in engaging in telehealth services when they hadn 't before and there was a pretty significant spike um, in terms of people that were interested in um, accessing services via telehealth. We know from the work that we 're doing with uh, various provider clients that the um, the, the cases that of telehealth services that they're providing have absolutely gone through the roof where it used to be something that um, was sort of on the margins of the services that their patient population accessed maybe by a handful of doctors. Now it's you know hundreds of times that in a matter of a month. So it's become um, a real sort of service line if you wanna think about it that way. Whereas before it was maybe a novelty um, offering that wasn't being accessed by a lot of people. I think um, that that particular trend is here to stay. Um, lots of our clients I know have really gotten a crash course over the last month in how to use telehealth. Um, and they've, I, I think they've figured out some pieces of the puzzle in terms of providing um, more in-depth services, um, r- sort of addressing more sort of sensitive healthcare issues, Um, And now that they've unlocked that, I don't think they're gonna go back. I I think, at least I hope, and the signals I'm getting suggest that they're probably gonna continue to try to figure out how to maximize how they use telehealth services. Um, That brings into question a lot of payment models. I I know that um, you just don't get paid the same way by health insurance companies for providing the same service over telehealth that you do in person. And that's probably an emerging frontier in contract negotiations with payers um, that um, they'll obviously healthcare providers will have to solve if they want to provide those services and get paid fairly for them, which I, I don't think they are today.
0: Yeah. And, and to be fair too, I mean, we've, we've been really focused as I think most hospitals and health systems should be as well on those procedures that you want to make sure you're, you're prioritizing because you need them financially. Mm-hmm. And most of those are not you can't solve those with telehealth. What telehealth can do um, is help grease the skids for those. So getting people in a virtual visit, maybe for some pre-op conversations, maybe to ensure that they do feel comfortable coming back in, the procedures we need them to have, first and foremost, have to happen outpatient or inpatient. Like that, those are the ones that we're gonna need to financially ride our ships, right? Um, but virtual visits can certainly help enable those. Uh, And so we need to make sure that we are um, leveraging those as much as possible. So any, any last bit, Sasha, you want to share before we wrap?
1: Yeah. A question I just saw come across from Liz Mm -hmm. um, about signals that are interpreted as sort of the, the lack of thought that there were some, so um, excessive interaction with, clinical staff um, was a really interesting one. Uh, someone mentioned that um, it would be great if I just had one nurse sort of tracking my entire experience there so that their shifts and their shift changes coincide with how long I'm going to be there, not necessarily how long they work. <laughs> um, and so the fact that they see more than one nurse is, was really a worrisome sign that came up a, a couple of times. Almost any um, prolonged interaction with other patients was also this really big red flag that uh, holy cow, why am I you know walking down a hall at the same time as this other person is? why am I on the elevator at the same time as this other person is um, and if that's happening, maybe they haven't thought through a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and then there are a couple of other cases of just lack of communication. So we had a, a couple of conversations with folks who had gone in for pre-op um, sort of prep visits. Um, they had a good visit, but they hadn't been told what the experience was going to be like at all. That was kind of off-putting, right? I'm, I'm relieved that, so I'm quoting them, so I'm relieved that I went through this experience and it, sent, it felt like they had their act together, but man, they didn't tell me any of what to expect right And they didn't tell me about the phone call that i was going to get the waiting i was going to do in the car how to access the elevator you know without using a finger it, why didn't they tell me about any of that that's night and day different from what i experienced six months ago when i went in um so it, it's really just as much communication clarity as it is specific protocols and signals that makes it
0: yeah totally and and i'll just add one last thing and then we'll wrap um, I had the exact experience, Sasha. So the same thing where I went in, everything had to funnel through the front doors. You had to be checked for COVID. And then you had to be escorted. So to your point, there was an escort. But they basically told me, go wait in the foyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was standing by like where the wheelchairs are stored. There was an older gentleman who was across the thing from me sitting on the bench. There was somebody behind me sitting on the windowsill. And I'm like, well, luckily, there's only three of us. Because if this was a normal day and there was twenty of us, where are you putting us all? Like I would have gone out in the parking lot and waited instead of where he told me to wait, and he had to keep coming out and giving me updates i 'm like clearly they 're still not quite where they need to be. Uh, they didn 't tell me to expect this. I found it a little like curious because that 's my job right now, but as a patient, I might have been this doesn 't like there 's no place for me to sit, and I could be brushing shoulders with people if there was double the number of patients so um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on that. So oh, let's wrap there, Sasha. Thanks so much for coming back, man. Great That's stuff.
1: Important stuff. Uh,
0: I will, again, remind people, if you want to um, have us look into something, uh, we're definitely open to feedback. So put something in the in the chat channel. Let us know if there's an area you'd like us to dive deeper into. We'll definitely consider that. Um, Chase, thank you so much, sir, for joining us again. Absolutely. Enjoyed the conversation. We've got Jeff Spear back tomorrow as guest host. Um, Elizabeth Musson will be back. She's SVP of our communications team. So it'll be good stuff there. Remember to visit our uh, COVID-19 communications hub at thinkrevivehealth.com slash COVID-19. Subscribe on iTunes. Let others know about this podcast. And for all of you out there working at hospitals and health systems, hang in there. Keep up the good work. We will be with you every day that this crisis continues. I appreciate you joining us today and we hope to see you tomorrow.